All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open up God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we read the Psalms, we also are reminded that it is in the light of your word that we see light. It is only when we come to understand the world around us, we come to understand ourselves, we come to, come to understand the purpose of life, that we, uh, when we submit that to the light of your word, that we really understand these realities. It is in your light that we see light. And Father, now as we study your word, in a topic that is not frequently taught and less frequently understood, we pray that you would help us, give us insight into your word, and that we might uh, understand the gospel more clearly, the dimensions of what Christ has done for us more precisely, that the more we learn, the more we are excited about what has been accomplished for us, and the better we are at communicating this good news to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Gospels from a Greek word, angelion, meaning good news. Of course, if you've got good news, you've got bad news. Last week, we looked at the bad news. And the bad news is that there is eternal punishment, eternal condemnation. The Bible talks about the lake of fire. And the fact that there is eternal condemnation and eternal punishment for those who have rejected the gospel is a doctrine that a lot of people today aren't comfortable with. Even, even among evangelicals or conservatives who believe that this is true, it's often not taught because it's not thought to be very, very popular. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but in conversations this week, somebody had asked me about that. And one of the articles I read last week, written by a, uh, a pastor who was initially going to react to one of these books written to say that there was no eternal lake of fire, he began to realize as he studied through the Scripture that that uh, not only was he more affirmed in his own position that the Bible clearly teaches an eternal uh, conscious punishment uh, fiery torment for those who are not saved, he realized how much he and his own teaching had had been impacted by sort of the negative response to this in our culture and had had unwittingly downplayed this, or he just didn't teach it very much or emphasize it. And he was convicted because of the uh, how frequently and how in, how significantly it is taught in the scripture as a warning. Uh, to all human beings and especially to believers uh, in terms of not that they would lose their salvation, but in terms of their understanding of the importance of communicating the gospel to those who are lost. 
That's one dimension. We looked at that last time because as I'm concluding this study at the end of Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 11, we talked about these verses from verses uh, 20 to 24 where Jesus announces this judgment on <clears throat> these three towns in the area of Galilee, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he makes this comment that, uh, for example, in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the, you know, the center of Baal worship, center of paganism, the, the uh, religious enemy of Israel uh, in the Old Testament, the religious enemy of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Jesus says, if the mighty works that were done in you, that is, in Bethsaida and Chorazin, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, that term day of judgment focuses on that final judgment that occurs at the great white throne judgment that's described in Re- at the end of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 20, which we'll be looking at. Uh, this morning as well, but that um, <clears throat> that passage uses that term, that comparative term, more tolerable. That it's not talking about the cities are going to be judged; it's talking about the inhabitants of those cities because it's the inhabitants who have rejected the revelation that God has given them, and it teaches that that there there's more revelation that's been given to uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin then was given to Tyre and Sidon. And because of that, there's a greater level of accountability. And therefore, for those who have rejected that punish, that, uh, that revelation, there's a greater degree of punishment. And this idea that there are degrees of punishment in the lake of fire is not often taught. And it's also not always understood. In fact, when I taught this a couple of weeks ago, I got two or three different questions from different people related to both the topic I covered last week, which does the Bible really teach an eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire? Because there are those who uh, don't want to believe that. It's not that God takes joy in that. He doesn't. They have rejected God's gracious offer of salvation, and as I pointed out at the end last week in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 3 and 4, God desires all men to be saved, but because they have rejected all that God has done for them, there's a consequence to sin. There's a consequence to spiritual death. There's a consequence to uh, rejecting this free offer of salvation. And because people are spiritually dead and have been corrupted by sin, there's consequences for that. And these consequences are not pleasant. I pointed out last time why it's so extreme is because sin is so extreme. We minimize sin in our culture. In a culture of relativism, you minimize sin. You minimize wrongdoing. It's it's not as serious or significant uh, as it's made out to be. I mean, everybody may, has flaws and faults, all these, all these rationales. But not only does the Bible teach that there are <clears throat> serious consequences because sin is serious, and it's a, as I pointed out last time, it is an act of rebellion against the infinite God, the eternal God, the infinitely righteous God, and therefore because it's an act of rebellion against infinite righteousness, 
it has an infinite dimension to its uh, existence, to its reality. And therefore, the punishment does fit the crime because the punishment is is infinite. It's an infinite uh, crime of infinite dimensions because it's committed against an infinite God, and therefore it has uh, infinite consequences. But not only is there punishment, eternal punishment, but there are apparently from these passages degrees of punishment. And so I was also asked the question, okay, if there are degrees of punishment, what's the basis for determining that degrees of punishment? I'll fine-tune that question a little bit as we go forward, but uh, as I pointed out last time in Matthew 25, 41, when this is at the end of the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation period, that is the judgment of those who live, who survive, the surviving Gentiles at the end of the tribulation period are going to be uh, judged. And at the end of that judgment, those who are, uh, who are believers are on the right hand and they will go into the kingdom. And those who are on the left hand of Jesus, he says, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that the lake of fire was not devised by God for the, originally for the punishment of human beings, but for the angels and for Satan because of, of, of their rebellion. Judgment is based upon God's righteousness. We look at his character, which is so important to understand it, specifically the four attributes of God's righteousness and justice and love and truth, that these are compatible in the character of God. When modern man comes along and says, I don't understand how a loving God can send his creatures to the lake of fire, he has presupposed an, an, a, a weak view of love. And when you have a wrong definition of love and a wrong definition of righteousness, then you end up creating a contradiction within the character of God. But if you understand the love of God as it's taught in Scripture, and you understand the righteousness of God as it's taught in Scripture, you understand that that punishment for that which violates the standard of God is consistent with God's, God's love and with his character. So there's no inconsistency here. Now, as we look at the scripture, we see that there there is a judgment that is coming at the end of human history. At the it comes at the end of the millennial kingdom. It's described in Revelation chapter twenty, verses twelve and thirteen specifically. And I saw the dead, small and the great, standing before God. These are the resurrected unbelievers. We know that from looking at other passages of scripture. All of the unbelievers. I saw the dead, small and great. Standing before God, there have been others who have already been judged, the sheep and the goat judgment, the Antichrist, the false prophet at the end of the uh, tribulation period. Believers were resurrected, raptured, and rewarded at the end of the church age. This is all of the unbelieving dead from the Old Testament period, the church age, and, and the tribulation. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. There's a record kept in heaven. The books were open. There's more than one book. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Those who trust in Christ as Savior have their name recorded in the book of life. Those who do not have their names recorded uh, in the book of works, and the dead are judged according to the works by the things which are written in the book. So this is an accounting image 
that there is a ledger in heaven that lists works. Now, I want you to notice here, and I'll spend some time talking about this later, that some of you, when I read that, uh, and the dead were judged according to their works, what you heard was the dead were judged according to their good works. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. It doesn't say that. Don't put that word there. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't, and it doesn't say they were judged according to their evil works. It just says they were judged according to their works. So we have to figure out what these works are. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. Twice we have this phrase, according to their works. Now here's a little chart of this great white throne judgment. Down here we have uh, three compartments of Sheol or Hades, as I talked about last time. One compartment used to be paradise until it went to heaven after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Then you have the great gulf that was fixed between paradise and torments. And torments, which is the place of fiery punishment for the unsaved until you come to the great white throne judgment. Then Hades gives up the dead and they stand before the great white throne judgment. And they are judged by the Lord Jesus Christ where it's peer judgment. We're judged by uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. We're judged by a perfect human being who was tested in all points as we are yet without sin. John 5.22, all judgment is delegated from the Father to the Son. Uh, those whose name is recorded in the book of life have eternal life. That's not going to uh, include anybody here at the... Um, Great White Throne Judgment, you have the book of man's works, the Lamb's book of life, and the book of life are basically the same thing. It's just called the Lamb's book of life in Revelation 21, 27. And those who do not measure up go to the lake of fire. Now, I'm going to say this about five different ways, but I want to make sure you understand this. At the Great White Throne Judgment... The issue is, are you righteous enough to measure up to God's righteousness? And so what's evaluated is the production of your life. When everything that you do is added up, some things are going to be in the plus column, some things will be in the minus column, some things are good moral deeds, some things are sin. When everything's added up, you have a sum total. If that sum total isn't perfect righteousness, it doesn't matter what's included in the calculation. If the sum total isn't perfect righteousness, you can't get into heaven. You have to have perfect righteousness. So what I'm telling you is the word works doesn't relate at all to good or bad. It relates to everything in your life. The sin you've committed, it's not spelled out. It's just the works are added up. And the sum total has to equal perfect righteousness or you don't get into heaven. It's the focal point here isn't on sin per se or good works per se. It's on the totality of your production. I'll tell you and explain that in more detail in just a minute. So we have to be reminded, why do people go to the lake of fire? What's going on here? First of all, we have, pass, we have passages that indicate that you're not sent to the lake of fire for personal sin. That's not why you're sent to the lake of fire. You're not sent to the lake of fire for Adam's original sin. Sin is not the issue. When, when people stand before the great white throne judgment, 
God the Father is delegated to Jesus Christ the Son. Jesus isn't saying, let me see, you committed this sin, you committed that sin, you committed this sin. Because you committed these sins, you're going to the lake of fire. Why isn't he saying that? Because he paid the penalty for sin. Okay? Now, we're not sent to the lake of fire for sin. We're sent to the lake of fire because we haven't availed ourselves of the solution, which is to believe in Christ. John 3.18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Now, pay attention to that phrase. That means that from the moment you're saved, you're already condemned. So are you condemned for your sin? Are you condemned for the lies you've told? Are you condemned for uh, the gossip? Are you condemned for the, uh, what I call, Eastlander, Internet slander, Icelander, whatever you want to call it? Are you condemned for sin? No. doesn't say that. You're condemned because you haven't, not for your personal sin, you're born condemned. That means we're born because of Adam's original sin. That's what theologians call it. We're, we're condemned because we're, spirit, we're born spiritually dead, so therefore we're under condemnation. So he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he sinned. Is that what it says? No. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believe, and then John 3.36, a few verses later, says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's one word used four times in those two verses, and what's that word? It's belief. The only condition for getting into heaven is to believe. And if you don't believe, then you're not going to get into heaven. Doesn't mention sin at all. In fact, 95, depends on the textual variance, 95 or 96 times in, in, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, you have the word believe. How do you get into heaven? Lord, let me into heaven. Why should I let you into heaven? What's the key word? Believe. I believed in Jesus. It's nothing else. It's amazing. I talked to other pastors. We've all had this experience. People come before us. They want to be a member of the church. Why do you think you're saved? It's amazing. Now, we don't get this here because I'm usually pretty clear on the gospel. But in my first church, when I was a young pastor, I had one lady who had been in a Bible church taught by good pastors for many years. I said, and I think just the framework of the question through her, I said, why, why would God let you into heaven? I, said, well, I don't know. I, I, well, I've been going to church. I've learned the Bible. I said, have you trusted in Christ? Yeah. I said, well, that's the issue. The question just threw her, but it's amazing how many Christians you ask that to, and they're just stopped. Well, I don't know. Believe, believe, believe. That's the only issue that we have in Scripture. It's not believe and do anything, not believe and be baptized, or believe and memorize uh, all the salvation verses in the Bible, or believe and give money. It's just believe. Okay? John 5, <clears throat> 24 again, emphasizes um, this issue of judgment. Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We're born condemned, John 3.18. We're born dead, John 3, I mean, John 5.24. Makes that very clear. 
Now, that condemnation, as I've already stated, isn't on the basis of anything that you or I have done. So, here's the point. Getting into heaven is not based on anything that you've done, good or bad. Getting into the lake of fire is not based on anything that you have done, good or bad. Clear? It's not based on anything that we do. It's based on what Adam did. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die. Romans 5.12 and following in chapter 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, one man, his decision was determinative because that's the way God created things. He was our representative and we're biologically connected to him. Both of those issues are true. Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam's sin. The Puritans had these great little primer that they would use to teach their kids, and they had a little ditty, a little short uh, two-line poem for every letter in the alphabet. First letter was Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. First thing that a little two- or three-year-old kid's going to learn, understanding that it's not my sin. I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sinned. I sin because I'm a sinner. I sin because I'm born corrupt. Okay, in Romans 5.15, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, Adam's decisions to cause the spiritual death. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. That's why we're born condemned, John 3.18. Because of Adam's sin. So it's not because of anything uh, that, that we have done. So as a result of Adam's sin, we basically have three problems. We basically have three problems. And this is why, th- th- this is the basis for our condemnation. The first problem is that we are born under this forensic that's a good fancy word if you watch CSI, NCIS, or any of those branded shows. You ought to understand the word for forensic. It's, it's judicial. It's something that relates to the legal system. We are under a forensic penalty that was enacted by God the instant that Adam sinned. He said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that day you will, in, you will certainly die, spiritual death. We're all under that penalty. Second problem that we have is we're born spiritually dead. The third problem that we have is that we are uh, we're born spiritually dead and we are unrighteous. See, the Bible says, Romans 3.10, it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 64.6 from the Old Testament, all our works of righteousness are filthy rags. Okay, so we don't we, we're, we're born spiritually dead, and we have uh, we don't have any righteousness. So these are the big three problems. So what happens? What happens is Jesus went to the cross and he solved the first problem. The first problem was that forensic penalty of spiritual death that condemned everybody. Jesus pays that penalty. We've gone through this numerous times. You can go back and listen to the details on this in Colossians two thirteen and fourteen. But here's how this should be translated. 
the Greek has a lot of participles, and the participles need to be understood in terms of whether they're temporal participle, which would be translated when or after. Usually it's not translated that way, or a lot of times it's not in the text. Sometimes they're causal. So I've inserted the proper nuance for those participles into the, the translation here. Paul says, you being dead. What he says is you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. See, when you were dead, that's how you were born. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, and trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh in 2.13. He has made us alive together with him. You had to be dead before you are alive. Then it says, having forgiven all trespasses. Well, actually, that's a causal statement. He made you alive. Why? Or how? Because he forgave you past tense of all trespasses. All your personal sins have been forgiven. The sin of Adam was paid for. This is why Ephesians 1 7 says that, that you have redemption, which is explained in the appositional clause after you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption's an economic term, it means to pay the price for something. Forgiveness, afiemi, is also an economic term. It means to eradicate a debt. You have redemption, your debt's eradicated. And so then people say, okay, when did this happen? When I trusted in Jesus? No. Look at the next verse. Because, at the end of 2.13, because he forgave you, past tense, of all trespasses, when did he do this? When he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Well, when did he wipe that out? That's that erasure of a debt. Afiemi, forgiveness. When he wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, he passed hence, because he nailed it to the cross. So when did he take it out of the way? In AD 33 when Christ was on the cross. That first problem of Adam's original sin and the forensic penalty that was the basis for our condemnation is eradicated at the cross. Well, why don't we all go to heaven? Because you're spiritually dead and you're unrighteous. you got three problems. You're under that forensic condemnation. Jesus solved that. But you're still spiritually dead and you still are unrighteous. The only way those get solved is when you trust in Jesus. At the instant you trust in Jesus, you're born again, you're given new life, you're no longer spiritually dead, you're spiritually alive. That's in the middle of Colossians 2.13. When you were dead, he has made us alive together with him. That's regeneration. So that's the second problem. But you only get regeneration when you believe in Jesus. And what about the righteousness thing? Well, that's how it is accomplished because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and God looks at us now not in light of our unrighteousness, but that we put on these new clothes, which are Christ's righteousness, and he looks at us and, and he sees the right kind of righteousness in our bank account, as it were, and he says, I declare you judicially righteous. But you only get that by faith in Christ. We're saved by faith in him. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Because Christ paid the penalty for sins, Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what does that mean? 
That means that sin's not the problem. You're not going to go to hell because you committed the nasty nine or the fearful five or the terrible two. You're condemned because you're still spiritually dead and you're unrighteous. You're only saved by faith. That's why he who doesn't believe is condemned already. When you believe, you're born again and you have received perfect, perfect righteousness. Now, that's understanding what the problem is and what happens at salvation. So, our eternal destiny, therefore, is not determined by how good we are or how sinful we are. Our eternal destiny is determined by faith in Jesus or no faith in Jesus. Okay? That's got to be clearly understood or we just can't go forward. Now, for those who have received God's free gift of eternal life, there's going to be an evaluation judgment in the future. When the rapture occurs, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, and thus we will be forever with the Lord. But there's an evaluation judgment called the Bema Seat, or the Judgment Seat of Christ, which is mentioned in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and it's mentioned in the passage I read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Jesus is going to return. This is what he says the last statement he makes in Revelation 22.12 to the church is to remember, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. Now, eternal life is a gift, but what happens at the judgment seat of Christ is that we are rewarded. We're rewarded. And what are we rewarded for? Rewarded according to our work. So here's the paradigm. Our destiny in heaven is not determined by what we do, but by faith in Christ. But where we are, our position, our responsibility in heaven is determined by what we do. Okay? Where we go is determined by our faith in Christ. But when we get there, there's an evaluation judgment to determine what our role and responsibilities are going to be when we get there. Can you see where I'm going with this? The flip side is that your destiny in the lake of fire is not determined by what you do. It's not determined by sin or morality or anything else. Your destiny is determined by lack of faith in Christ. But once you get there, where you are in hell, excuse me, in the lake of fire, where you are in the lake of fire is going to be determined by what you did. We're judged by work. So, let's talk about this just a little bit. What does it mean when we talk about judged according to work? The word for work is a Greek word, ergon, which simply means works. It has a variety of uh, definitions. It can be an act. It can refer to your accomplishments. It can refer to deeds or an action. It can refer to achievement work. It can refer to a thing, a matter, a task, or a mission. It basically is what you produce. The word ergon in and of itself simply means what you produce. And it can be good or bad. Let's look at some of the ways in which this word is used. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How do you know it's talking about good works? It says so. There's an adjective modifying the noun. 
If it just said works, you wouldn't know whether they were good or bad because good or bad are not included in the meaning of the word ergon. It's a neutral term. John 3.19, this is a condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There we know it's talking about sinful works because it uses the word evil. And evil is often a word that is used to describe sin. For example, 1 Kings 16.19 states that because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. See, sometimes we use the word evil as if it's something different from just sin. Okay, and sometimes it is. Sometimes it's talking, you know, somebody's good work, somebody's self-righteousness can be evil. It's not necessarily sin, but it is, it, it may be relatively good works, religious activity, but it's evil. But in a lot of places in the Bible, the word evil is a synonym for sin. Another passage, 2 Kings 13.2, said he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. So that becomes very clear. And David, when he confesses his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, says in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So evil is a synonym for sin in a lot of places. Okay, so what we see is the word work is a neutral term. You have to look to see if the context defines whether you're talking about that which is good or that which is, which is bad. There are other adjectives used to uh, define this. Uh, <clears throat> work is also used to describe faith. Now, that confuses some people. It's just something that you, that, that in, in a general sense, is something that you do. You believe you did something. You believed. That in, in a broad, loose sense is a word work, but it's, it's a different sense of work than the w- way the word work is used in passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where works are contrasted to faith. Okay, here Jesus says, uh, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who, whom he sent. So in some passage, in this passage, work is related to faith. In Romans 3.20, it says the works of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Galatians 2.16 says the same thing. Galatians 5.19 says now the works of the flesh are evident. And this is talking about sin. So here's a passage where works can't mean something like human good or or, or, or something moral that's not righteous. It clearly refers to sin. So the term works can be defined as sin depending on the modifiers. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What? Not of works. So faith is not of works. So you have to understand the nuances of the word and the range of meanings. Then we're told, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, there's talking about good works. And we know that works are the basis of evaluation. Romans 2.6, who will, God will render to each one according to his deeds. 
2 Corinthians 11.15, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers, talking about Satan's fallen angels, his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Their in judgment is not just based, is based on their rejection of God in eternity past that sent them to the lake of fire, but then there's additional judgment that's according to what they do. 2 Timothy 4.4, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Now, is that going to be judgment seat of Christ? Or is that judgment in time? Ah, you see, we also have people who are judged in time for their sin. We talk about that all the time, divine discipline. You sin, you live in carnality, you're going to go through divine discipline. So when we say... Sin isn't the issue anymore. What we really mean is sin isn't the reason you're sent to the lake of fire. But God still brings judgment on people for their sin according to their works. Alexander the coppersmith, for one. We also see that, that this work is a basis for evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the context of 1 Peter 1.17. The Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Okay, that's the foundation of the judgment seat of Christ. And also Revelation 2.23 and Revelation 18.6 talk about, uh, talk about this idea of, of, of judgment. Revelation 2.23 is judgment seat of Christ. I will give to each one of you. They're already saved. They're already going to heaven. But now there's going to be positive rewards. I will give to each of you according to your works. And then the flip side in Revelation 18.6, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. That indicates repay double, that there are different levels of judgment for sin and disobedience. Where you end up in the lake of fire or in heaven is not determined by what you do. It's determined by what Christ did and what you did in relation to that. Where you end up in heaven or in the lake of fire is determined by what you do. So that's why we can say things like, well, Adolf Hitler is going to be in a different level of the lake of fire than maybe someone like Mother Teresa. They're both going to be in eternal, conscious, fiery punishment, but there are going to be different degrees of intensity. I don't understand that. But they will be evaluated on the basis of their response to various, various things. Sin isn't the issue and why they're in the lake of fire, but it, their works are the issue of where they are when they're there. Okay, now another word that we have to define in all of this is that word judgment. Because we often say, well, we're not judged for our sin. Sin's no longer the issue. But there are different ways in which judgment is used. I'm not going to go into all of them, just three are important. First of all, we use the term judgment to describe God's eternal final judgment with reference to our eternal destiny. And we have passages like Matthew 10:15. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. John 5:24. The person who has everlasting life and believes in me shall not come into judgment. That's talking about the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. Then there's judgment in the sense of evaluation. This is the evaluation of the individual believer's uh, life with reference to eternal rewards. Uh, <clears throat> passages I've looked at already, First Peter 1.17, that we are to 
that we will be judged without partiality according to our work. That's at the judgment seat of Christ. In Revelation 2.23, Jesus says to the church, I will give to each one of you according to your works. There's also a third use, that is divine discipline in time. Divine discipline in time. In Romans 1.32, we're told, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So this is talking about God's judgment uh, in time, in history. Uh, Romans 2, 1 and 2 uh, also uh, references this kind of divine judgment on both the lost as well as the saved uh, in time. Believers who live in carnality are going to be judged for it. We, the word judge is used, and it's talking about simply divine discipline in time. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, we also have this word used, uh, in reference to self-judgment. The Corinthians were abusing the Lord's table, so Paul is correcting them, and he says, For he who eats and drinks at the Lord's table eats and drinks judgment to himself. But see, their sin's already paid for. But because they're sinning, they're coming to the Lord's table out of fellowship, there's going to be divine discipline. He who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. See, what we have there is degrees of punishment. Some are simply spiritually weak, some are spiritually sick, and others have died the sin unto death and sleep. But Paul says if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. That's talking about in time. It's divine discipline. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. See how that comes together? So we have to look at the fact that the word judgment for sin is clearly used in terms of the believer's discipline while he's alive on this earth. So the conclusion we reach is that judgment at the great white throne judgment is on the basis of our production, on the basis of works. Do we have enough to be perfectly righteous? No. If you don't, then you're still, it's because you're still spiritually dead and you haven't received the imputation of Christ's righteousness, so you're still condemned. Believers and unbelievers are also judged in the sense of divine discipline and the wrath of God in time for sin and disobedience to God. Now, when we look at Scripture, we also see that there are various uh, passages that talk about different uh, degrees of things, that comparative terms are used. For example, we have the phrase, the greatest commandment, in Matthew 22, 36 to 38. There are Obviously, some commandments that, in terms of the Lord's language, aren't as great as others. Uh, love is called the greatest virtue. The greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law. So there are some sins that are, in some ways, have greater impact and more consequences than others, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which we'll discover in Matthew 12:32, uh, seems to be in that category, a unique category of sin. I believe it was for that time, but it was greater than other sins. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1:15, he was the chief sinner. So there are these gradations, these degrees of differences that clearly appear in some passages. Uh, another passage that I'm not going to spend time looking at it, but you can look at it later. In Luke 12:42, as the servant and the master, 
Uh, it depicts the relationship of God to Israel who is to serve God. And in this, pic- in this parable, the servant pictures Israel as a disobedient servant who was called to serve God but failed. And so he is going to be beaten with many, many stripes. <clears throat> and in um, Luke 12, 48, uh, he there was uh, another servant who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, and he was to be beaten with a few stripes. So the difference is the degree of revelation that they had and their response to it. So that's one part of the uh, of the distinction. And in Luke twelve forty seven to forty eight, clearly makes the point of, of different degrees of punishment uh, that exist. We have other parables to look at. Uh, Matthew twenty five fourteen to twenty is a parable of the talents. Again, there are different degrees of rewards. We should be aware of that as believers. But we have these passages that show up. Passages, for example, Luke ten fourteen, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Uh, Mark six eleven. These are passages that repeat some of the ones in Matthew eleven. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for this city. And then we have a passage in Luke, uh, Luke 20, verses 46 to 47. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Okay? So the Bible clearly talks about the fact that, that, that for the unbeliever, there are degrees of punishment. Not for uh, his destiny isn't determined by his sin, but what he does with various things will determine that that outcome. Now, that's the hard question. Well, how does God make that evaluation? He makes that evaluation on the basis of his divine uh, omniscience. We know from Romans 1.32 and Romans 2.2, that his judgment is always going to be consistent with his righteousness. It's based on his righteousness, and it's based on his truth. From the passage we've seen in Matthew eleven twenty to 24, as well as Romans 2, 12 to 15, it's based on the degree of revelation that people reject. If they're given a little bit, of, and everybody's given a minimal amount of revelation through nonverbal general revelation. Everybody has enough revelation through the creation to know that God exists, and they're held accountable to that. Some people have more. Some people uh, have, have not so much, but everybody has enough to be held accountable. But if you're given a tremendous amount, then you're accountable for that. That's part of the, part of the data that goes into this judgment logarithm that God has that determines the, the, the final standing. It's going to be according to one's works. So somebody may be very moral, reject a lot of information. God somehow figures out how to sort that out and come out with a righteous, just judgment. Romans 2.16 says it's also according to the secrets of men's hearts. These will be exposed and evaluated. The bottom line is we know that God is a righteous judge. We can't comprehend all the data that goes into the final decision, either for for judgment or for our rewards. God, in in his omniscience, knows all of the knowable, and we can only say what Abraham said in Genesis 18.25, 
that shall not the judge of all the earth do right. He will always do the right thing. He is perfect, his plan is perfect, and his plan of salvation is perfect. So his plan of salvation, which determines our, our eternal destiny, is not based on anything that we do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross, and all we, the only issue for us is whether we're going to believe or not believe. But once we believe, we need to recognize that, that there's an obligation upon us to grow to spiritual maturity and to serve the Lord. And how well we do that is the basis for our rewards. On the flip side, for the unbeliever, those who yield to their sin nature and are disobedient to God in extreme ways will receive greater judgment and punishment in the lake of fire than others. But they're all going to be in eternal conscious torment. Some are going to be in what worse means, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us that there will be these degrees of punishment. But the focus for us is on the gospel and on explaining the good news. That's why it's such good news. We don't have to worry about eternal condemnation. And when we grasp that, it ought to stimulate us to greater evangelism for those around us who do not understand the gospel. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to take these things and to study them and reflect upon them. And and even though you have not revealed answers to all of our questions, you've given us a basic framework to think about these particular uh, issues. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage, the opportunity, the resourcefulness through God the Holy Spirit to make the gospel clear to those who you bring in our path and that we might recognize the seriousness of the mission that you have given us to proclaim the good news that we can have and know that we have eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge these things, and if there's anyone listening to this message, that they would understand that that their eternal destiny has nothing whatsoever to do with, for any of us, with what we do or don't do. It has to do with whether or not we trust in Christ as Savior because he has paid that eternal forensic penalty for us. He died in our place on the cross that we might have the free gift of eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.